0: We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters.
1: Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of Woe. If you
0: want to contribute more than a dollar a month which obviously no pressure whatever you've got we are so appreciative to have but we have awesome gifts for you if you want a hand addressed letter from morgan and isabeau maybe with some special whoa stickers other merch
1: just uh, visit our patreon we are womance on patreon or is it patreon.com forward slash womance we would be very proud to call you one of our patrons Welcome to a wonus. Wonuses are back. Yay, we missed you. We missed you so much. As you probably know by now, we will still continue to have our Janes, but we're also going to be doing some more wonuses lately because there's a lot of hot topics in romance. Um, Debatable whether or not this one is still hot, but there's a lot of also warm topics in romance. There's a lot of room temperature. To tepid topics in romance. Dare I say perennial topics in romance? Oh, perhaps. Uh, That we want to talk about and tackle. uh, And we're tired of trying to shoehorn them into episodes. Let's just give them their due. Let's just let them rip. Let's just give them their due. And let's, in the meantime, clear the passage for our actual book discussions. Also, we might cut this out of the episode. But... Isabeau and I are going. I am going through the 21st century epilogue of getting married this summer. Isabeau is going through the 20th century romance novel epilogue of producing an heir this summer. I am doing that. That's right. Isabeau's the oven, and her fetus is the bun. Yep. It's true. But as you can imagine, that means there's, like, a lot of unpredictability for us. And one of the things that I think has made um, romance last as long as it has is that we read other stuff. <laughs> and so being conscientious of the fact that we've got so much coming up, we're going to have more wonuses. And if there's anything you want to talk us, about, us to talk about with wonuses – We are more than happy to outsource our creative direction to you, the listener. (laughs) So be sure to like DM us on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook and or email us, wellmatesmail at gmail.com, and let us know what you want us to talk about.
0: Absolutely. What is noodling in your noodle? What are the perennial romance topics that you don't feel like get enough play on all those other podcasts? We'd love to turn over that rock with you.
1: Yeah. Or maybe you just like hated their take and you'd like another chance with someone who maybe has a take that you're into. Speaking of which, I did try to outsource some of the production creative direction on this episode to our listeners who follow us on Instagram at Womance, but unfortunately, No one replied to my story in time. So it's just going to be me asking you questions about a little phenom we know as Julia Quinn's
0: A Bubberton series. Specifically the Shonda Rhimes Netflix adaptation of The Bibbertons.
1: Isabel, did you read any of the Bridgerton books?
0: Number one and number four.
1: Number, okay, which one is number four? What, number one. Who's number one story?
0: That's the Duke, the one who likes to lick spoons, according to Shonda Rhimes.
1: Okay, it's called the Duke and I. (laughs) Which Bridgerton is it about? I actually don't know this. Daphne.
0: Daphne, the daughter. Okay. The firstborn daughter. So here's what I know about the Bridgertons. Great. That's a
1: great place to start okay here's what i know about bridgerton's the series it is a how it is a uh historic it's a regency romance series correct it is a household of well-to-do i believe there's a lord
0: a v count
1: a v count okay and it is a household of many siblings one dead dad yes fuck, I'm killing it. You are. Like, you're knocking it out of the park. Their mother obviously anticipated being very fruitful for the Lord and Church of England, the one that the Church of England is into. And she produced, she started naming her children based on the alphabet. So the firstborn Mm -hmm. son is named, holy shit, I know this, Mm -hmm. Anthony. Correct. The second one Mm -hmm. is named Boris. Benedict. The third one, mm-hmm. Cletus. Colin. Then we've got Daphne. Yep. Then we've got Eleanor. Eloise. Close. Eleanor was a really good guess. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, then we've got Franklin the Turtle. Frederick. Frederick. Mm-hmm. Annoying in short pants for most of it. Gotta go through the alphabet in my hand. And then we've got Ghoulie bridgerton hyacinth e f g h what happened to g
0: hyacinth is the flower that dear dead dad is bringing into nine months pregnant mom the day he dies
1: i thought you were going to tell me that hyacinth absorbed her twin in vitro (laughs) her twin gladiola (laughs)
0: better story than dead dad had died with hyacinth flowers in his hand for a wife.
1: Oh, no. Okay. How did her... Wait. How did the dad die?
0: Whoa, 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 whoa. That is a key plot aspect of season two of Shonda Rhimes brings you Julia Quinn's Bivertons.
1: Okay. Okay. So, okay. So, hyacinth is the last one. The last one. She's a child. Okay, here's something else I know. Eloise is not a lesbian. A lesbian. Eloise. Much as the internet wants her to. I be. think that pff, Eloise, she has the book that sounds like My Dear Folly by Laura Kinsale, but I've heard it's less good.
0: I am of the persuasion that most books are less good than Laura Kinsale books. <laughs>
1: <laughs> if you haven't read My Sweet Folly. Oh my God, get on board. But then also listen to our episode about it. It's very good. But it's, a, it's an epistolary between a much younger woman and a much older man, right? Like that's the gag? That's the gag for Eloise?
0: The gag is that they've bo- they both think that they've made it up. They think that they're writing to no one, and it turns out they're writing to a real
1: person. What? How do you think that you're writing to no one?
0: Because you start by writing to a person who never writes back. And, like, in the Laura Kinsale book, she believes that he's been killed in the...
1: Oh, he ghosts her. Yeah.
0: Right. And same thing happens to Eloise.
1: Oh, okay. So, yeah, it's exactly like My Sweet Folly. Yeah. But probably less groovy, hallucinogen...
0: Yeah, and, like, way less interested in, like, cool in- interiority.
1: Peeling apart the layers of uh, empire. Right. Does that really happen?
0: In the Laura Kinsale book, it does.
1: It doesn't happen in Eloise's book. No. So, did you read Eloise's book?
0: Yeah. What's
1: book number four?
0: I don't actually remember the order it is, so maybe I read number three because I read the one with Colin and his love interest, which is...
1: Who is... I. Eloise's friend. That is a huge spoiler alert, Morgan. Oh, is it?
0: No. (laughs) Pardon me. But yeah, it is about that. He falls in love with the girl next door who's been pining for him forever.
1: Who happens to be Eloise's be Fry, best friend, who is named Penelope,
0: Lady Whistledown.
1: You're the one with the spoilers. Her name's Penelope, right? <laughs> yeah,
0: it's Penelope. <laughs> but also, the Biverton's Netflix show told us in book one who that person was. And like, you had to wait so long in the series to find out who that really? person was. Yeah, so like, it was shocking to me when Netflix made the
1: reveal. Okay. I'm trying to think if I know anything else about Bridgertons. I know about the stuff that you wrote in our pe- in the piece for our website about the adding race as a element to the stories. Um, I also know what I've seen from the trailers, which we went into depth on this on a Shelf Love episode. Listen to Shelf Love, especially listen to us when we're on Shelf Love, that I expressed frustration that... Romance is finally getting this platform. Clearly, we delivered on it as a fandom because Bridgerton became a huge deal in spite of all of the problematic skirtings about Julia Quinn and the you know nature of Regency historical romances published in the 21st century in general. But then they still give us zippers on the backs of dress and bad wigs. Now, someone pointed out to me, of course, they gave Penelope a bad wig because she's got to have a glow up. Oh, that's actually a good point. But that why does Daphne need a bad wig
0: then? I would say that's maybe just her hair. Daphne's wig is hideous. And I would also say that's the other thing about this. Like, I think it's bad hairstyling. The baby bangs thing was disgusting. I hated it. Yeah. But there are also bad wigs in season two. Like obvious. That's the thing where it's like there's enough money here that you should have a person like in charge of wigs who knows how to place them with the hairline so that they don't look atrocious and obvious. And it's like... I don't work in costume design, and if I, a fan, can see it,
1: maybe not. So here's the thing. We heard that Bridgerton was getting turned into a series. I won't disclose who gave us the scoop, but I will say we found out about it three years ago? Like, well before it was ever made. And we were like, well, it's going to be a Netflix series. Should we talk about it? And Isabelle... Wasn't a huge fan of the books. No. And we always read the books with the intention of loving them. And she just didn't want to go there. And then, you know, we start to see the zeitgeist pick up around it. We're like, oh, maybe we should do something. But then, like, other people were doing, like, really cool stuff around it. Learning the tropes. Like, watched every episode in one night and knocked out their, like, podcast. Like, they, like, really turned and burned it and we still like weren't that interested in talking about it and we were like what are we going to add to the conversation right like we hear all these things people reach out to us um you know we've long been a safe space for people who don't love lisa clay pass to reach out to we've long and we've become a safe place where people started reaching out as the show was coming out and being like hey like I'm really weary of the sexual assault that's going to be in this episode. And I feel like nobody's talking about it. And I would be like, oh, can I share this? And then like eight people would reply and be like, me too. And I would share that, you know. You know, here at Woman we realize that we do feel fill a vacuum in, you know, people not wanting to feel alone and being critical or weary of something. And also, I now feel like we are filling a, val- a vacuum that – is what we initially, for Bridgerton, which is the vacuum we initially set out to fill, which is two assholes talking to each other about something we feel irrationally strong about. What I love about this show is that Isabel gives me no pushback on that statement.
0: I was like, the sun sets in the West, Morgan. Because it's true.
1: (laughs) But I have found myself getting, because I've avoided reading the books, um, we have a mutual friend who texted me when Bridgerton first came out on Netflix and was like, I just saw the first season. I'm going to buy the first book. And I was like, I mean, like, I have better recommendations, but live your life. She then slapped me in the face and continued to read Bridgerton and then stopped recently and texted me like, I have to stop. Like, it's, it's not as good as it was. And it made me realize, like, I've been deeply resistant to reading it. I've been deeply resistant to watching it because I want to be a contrarian. And there's probably others out there like me or people who have watched the series or just read the books and been like, what, what's that whole deal about? And I was like, I am still a romance novice with my romance expert friend, Isabeau who can help guide me through this. And Isabeau has watched both seasons and has read the two books that we mentioned and corrected me on the names of the children. So clearly she knows enough.
0: <laughs> to be your cruise ship director. Yeah. On the USS Bibberton.
1: So there was a time when like, it was enough to know that that guy licked a spoon. Mm-hmm. Like you could get through like any conversation. It was like, Isabel remembers this era of my life when I was like, all I need to know about the Chicago Bears is that I'm upset with the owners. Yep. And that we should trade out that one quarterback who is dating uh, Heidi. Jay Cutler. Jay, Jay Cutler. Mm-hmm. And so I like, so like anytime someone said like, oh, Chicago, the Bears, I'd be like, oh, Jay Cutler. Yeah. And just let him go, you know. And so, like, people would be like, oh, Bridgerton, I'd be like, ugh, the spoon. And people would just go. Yep. But this has become a much more richer, much more prescient text. There are now people paying to go to the Bridgerton Ball. In Chicago. It's going to be in Chicago? Yeah, dude, there's a Bridgerton Ball in Chicago. People are getting tickets now. Did they offer us free tickets? They did not. Motherfuckers, let's rip their assholes open here. What is? The Bridgerton Ball. Like, what is the relevance? How like, there's a diamond appointed? Yeah. Like, in the show. Well, I haven't seen the show.
0: (laughs) So do you want to start at the show?
1: Well, I want to ask you specific questions. Okay. Because I think there's, like, enough that, like, I can determine. Daphne falls in love with the Duke.
0: Yep. She rapes him and gets pregnant against his will.
1: Yeah. Well, I'll ask about that stuff later.
0: That's the first season.
1: I want to start with what is the the context for the Bridgerton ball? What is a diamond?
0: Oh, you're not talking about the thing that's taking place in Chicago, which is like a dress up ball. You're talking about in the text itself. No,
1: I, I think that I'm, I'm going to keep it to I'm going to keep my questions to the television show in the book.
0: Get great. Helpful. Because
1: I've seen enough TikToks to know that the Bridgerton ball exists, what it looks like, And I know enough to know that you can order drinks. Yep. After you buy tickets. Yep. Which, like, what is this? So, a concert? (laughs) A sporting match? Anything else in the world? Why did I get so affected? (laughs) Okay. I pay for a ticket. I get bottomless (laughs) drinks. It's like a wedding, right? Right. I mean...
0: That would be technically true of the come-out ball. So, like, the Bridgertons do throw balls, that's true, but the ball wherein the diamond is chosen or where the diamond is presented is different, right? So each season thus far has started with the presentation of the debutantes. So in Regency England, anybody who's anybody... Gets a London season, and that starts with your presentation to the Queen. You bow in front of her, you wear white, everyone ooze and ahs over your dowry, and then there's a series of balls wherein you enter the marriage mart.
1: So, what do you mean everyone ooze and ahs over your dowry? Do you like bring a treasure chest with you?
0: Your mama, as well as others, know how much you're worth
1: because of the book, the peerage book.
0: Oh, yeah. De Beers. So they know who your blue blood belongs to, which cousins married your other cousins, as well as the the, the case of your estate, like whether or not your dad uh, left you with nothing that wasn't entailed.
1: But as avid romance readers, we know there's lots of ways to obscure your dowry. Yes. To obfuscate. Daphne
0: does not do that. Neither do the Sharma sisters, which was changed from the original text.
1: Okay. Wait. Okay. So the Sharma sisters don't obfuscate.
0: The Sharma sisters don't have a doubt. Uh, okay.
1: Well, okay. And they're like upfront about it.
0: Very. Because they're being presented by Lady Danbury, who is vouching for them.
1: Okay. Well, I feel like we're jumping ahead. 'Cause okay. the, the Sharma sisters are from season one. I asked. No, they're you, season two. Oh, from season two. So mm-hmm. okay. What is the Bridgerton ball in reference to? First question. Go.
0: Again, like which Bridgerton Ball? Like they're The
1: the one in real the one where you can buy tickets to. what is that in reference to in the books or the T V show? That's in reference to like the big balls that happen.
0: I don't think it's in just
1: like balls generally. Yeah, there
0: are you like in the first book there are three balls okay. in the second book. I, based on the TV show, there are multiple balls.
1: Which is historically accurate.
0: Yeah. The London season is full of balls.
1: And every Regency romance novel you read.
0: Yeah. It's balls on balls on hunk balls. A bunk, <laughs> Sweaty Hunch balls. A block. Drunk balls, balls. All Mac balls.
1: So what is the diamond? The diamond is the debutante
0: who's been presented to the queen in the court itself, who is chosen as the the catch of the season. She's the prettiest. She's the smartest. She's the wittiest. She the it girl. Chosen by Queen Charlotte.
1: Okay. I assume that all of the string quartet covers of top 40 songs are related to the balls in the TV show. Mm-hmm. Do they just? Is that just the general soundtrack? Is top forty songs provided by the Vitamin C Quartet? Yes, I know about that because I went to my local coffee shop and one of the baristas was loudly explaining to his manager what the soundtrack to Bridgerton was, and he started playing Vitamin C Quart cor- string quartet, and I was like, "There's no way." Is way.
0: Is way It happens at the balls. It happens during very dramatic scenes. It happens when they're alone. It is top 40 on cello and viola.
1: Can I get an example of something, an example that stands out in your mind of a really well chosen or poorly chosen mm. pop song performed by a string quartet? in Bridgerton season one or season two the floor is yours thank you I will refer to
0: season two because it's much fresher in my mind but (laughs) at one of the balls uh dancing on my own comes on which is by Robin which was both hilarious because as if you are familiar with uh period pieces no one dances on their own all of the dances are scripted
1: (laughs) And it you could feel like you're on and it
0: doesn't even get into the emotional center of the two characters who have really just like because like if they were truly dancing on their own, like there's a very famous a uh, scene in Pride and Prejudice with Matthew Mcfadden where they are doing the scripted dance and like the people fall aw- like the- there're no more people and it's just them dancing on their own together that doesn't happen in Bridgerton so like i think i think the showrunners imagined that it would be ironic but it neither works on <laughs> Like, it doesn't work on the level of the song lyric being explicit. And it also doesn't work on the emotional level of what's happening between the characters. But I will say, it is a really, really good cover.
1: <laughs> um. So it's not like they're, like, feeling lonely and rejected through this dance. They're, like, actually feeling each other a lot in that scene. And it's dancing on my own. That is upsetting. It's mm-hmm. a little... Okay. It's like, did you
0: listen to this song or do you just like the way that it sounds on quartet? Because like, it sounds amazing, but like, it does not. It is like, we're missing it on both beats.
1: Okay. So what I'm hearing, if I'm reading Between the Lines, is that Bridgerton, the TV show, is not expecting you to read Between the Lines. No. Okay.
0: It also does not lend itself to what I would say is like any kind of period historical critique because like you and I could go hard on how shitty the dresses are and like zippers for days but also literally they That's why I refuse to watch the show <laughs> they also just don't do empire wastes like correctly and so like there was this whole conversation about like several of the characters it's less egregious in the main characters I will say But for some of the ancillary characters, I'm like, why are you wearing a 1950s upholstered dress that's
1: just, instead of a... A Dior, the new look, instead of...
0: Yeah, I'm like, and it's just, instead of being T-length, it's floor-length. I'm like, I don't, none of the colors are correct. None of, like, and so, like, I don't want to get into that, because, like, I think the TV show really leaned into costume as play place. Okay. So, like... I don't think it's useful to be like, it's not period appropriate. It's not, but it's not intended.
1: So you feel like, well, I would say probably the creative direction overall, because it looks awfully sunny and florally. Yeah,
0: London during the season isn't necessarily that either.
1: It looks a little bit like a prom theme, doesn't it? Yes. Like someone has put out blue cellophane and plugged in a rope light underneath it.
0: Lots of fake wisteria.
1: Lots of fake wisteria. Well, I kind of like that. I kind of – because I I think romance novels – Like, that's the version of history that they tend to live in, is like a very colorful, we're not actually writing about history, we're writing about our current moment. But it's so interesting that Julia Quinn's novel (laughs) is adapted in that way, given some of the things she said. Allegedly. We weren't in the bookstore, we just read the tweets after the fact, right? We're being awfully cagey. She said that she doesn't write people of color
0: into her books because their history is a bummer.
1: Her, some tweets, not by Julia Quinn, but by other people who were at her talk at the Strand, I think, that she said she did not write people of color into her romance novels because she did not believe that people of color had happily ever afters.
0: Which is historically inaccurate and also just what
1: people wrong. F- fall in love and find happiness in all sorts of contexts and telling a single story about a group of people. Perpetuating a single story about a group of people is a f- you shouldn't do it. Like that's fucked up,
0: also just like wrong. like Alexander Dumas, who wrote The Three Musketeers, was a black man and a duke, <laughs> like, yeah, it's just like it's also not hard to find historical people of color who like did very well for themselves and like lived really cool lives. So like mm.
1: uh, a lot of people believe Queen Charlotte herself was a woman of color mm-hmm. in history. And she is portrayed by a black actress mm-hmm. um, in the series. And is now going to get her own spinoff. Yeah. Young oh, Queen Charlotte. Really? Mm-hmm. That is so interesting to me that like a historical figure, like there are so many TV shows about historical figures, especially in relation to the British aristocracy. Yes. That it makes sense, but also surprises me that this like fictionalized version of Queen Charlotte is getting a spinoff. Yep.
0: What other questions do you have about Netflix's season two of Bibbertons?
1: Well, it's season two and season one. So I understand. So when I first started seeing the casting coming in for the show, I saw a lot of praise for colorblind casting. But I think like race actually plays a role in the show it does can you tell me about that
0: (laughs) like how does that work sure so in season one the duke is a very light-skinned black man and he has this whole thing like his dad's really shitty and like blah 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 but he has a very weird conversation with lady danbury who is this incredible powerhouse black woman where she's like you know queen charlotte is you know Queen and like we've made it and he's like they will tear us down instantaneously for anything like if you think this is going to last you're wrong um or if you think that we're going to be allowed to make mistakes you're wrong and so that felt like very much like a conversation
1: does he say in the context of like why is he talking to lady danbury because she's like you can be happy like you
0: can relax and he's like you're an idiot
1: and is it because they are – does he say explicitly because we're black?
0: No, he just says they will tear us down. And, like, you're left as the audience to imagine what he's discussing there. Okay. But since she makes specific reference to Queen Charlotte, it the subtext to me suggested that it was about race. And then in the second season – The Sharmas have arrived from India. It's made very explicit that their father was like a clerk in what I imagine was like a shipping company or something because they spent their entire lives in India. And like their race isn't really brought up Mm -hmm. in that way. It's much more about class, but you can't disassociate class and race in this era the way that I think the show might want you to.
1: I'm going to look up if it's true in the books. There's a whole Bridgerton wiki. What's the over-under on this existing before the TV show? I don't know. You don't want to predict. You don't want to guess. The Vicant Who Loved Me. Google wants to know if I want to go there. The only obstacle is his Older sister, Kate Sheffield. Not from India. Yeah. If I search India... Oh, yeah. She's not from India in the original book. She's from the countryside. And her last name is Sheffield. Well, that sounds like a lot of, uh, that sounds like the TV show is creating a much richer story that's kind of like gesturing. Like we, we talked about My Sweet Folly, kind of gesturing towards the ideas of empire. Does the TV show, does season two explore the idea of empire in India at all? My glib answer
0: (laughs) is no, not really. Although I will say that there has been a lot of, I think, appropriate discussion around Kate Sharma has a couple of scenes where she's making tea and she does this whole thing with Whole spices, and mm. it, it, it's both a thing that she does for herself to connect to a country she misses gravely and wants to return to and says as much about, as it is a subtle mm-hmm. dig at like the dried tea bags that other people like give her. And they're like, Oh, you like strong tea. And she's like, This isn't tea. And that's pretty much as strong a note as the show gives Kate about India and there's no discussion about the crimes that England is perpetrating against that nation or those people. Yeah, just like there's a moment where she's walking along the Thames and I love that you're like, oh, really? The show isn't going to like unravel? (laughs) No, it's not.
1: It is like a little bit surprising for everything it's purported to be and the year we're in. That's what I mean about like it wants
0: it to be specifically about class and that like it's enough that these are two obvious South. Asian women Mm -hmm. and like you can draw the line from there I think is what the show is saying because like they don't have a dowry well why don't they have a dowry and like they you know people don't expect them to have good manners and so like all of that race stuff is there and I think like you can certainly pick up on it. It it just isn't fully conscienced and it isn't fully surfaced. And the moments that it is, somebody's like, oh, England is this way. You must really miss India. And she's like, yes, I miss these things about it. I miss these smells. I miss these places. I miss like these tastes. And they're like, it sounds like a beautiful place. Maybe I'll go there. And and it's like, oh, man,
1: if you're a second son and you're going to You're going to buy a captaincy. You're not going to do good things in that place. Oh, so someone who's like a second son buying a captaincy is the one who's like, love to visit.
0: (laughs) I mean, a bunch of people say that to her, but like the undertone of what it means for British aristocracy to say I'd love to go, Mm -hmm. it's portrayed as like a social nicety that they don't mean in the television show when its actual fangs are... Lots of British aristocracy went to India, stripped it of its natural resources, and killed people and oppressed people and colonized people. Yeah. And then came back with massive yes. fortunes. Yeah. And like this show just is like boop, boop.
1: <laughs> I see. Well, that's not what I was expecting from the conversation. Another thing that people have shared anxiety around, and I want to get to like, Stuff that's positive, right? But another thing people have shared anxiety around is fat phobia in the texts and how that's going to play out with Penelope's character in the actual series. Because in her book, I've heard that she's like thins out some once she – comes of age and then she's like oh I just lost my baby fat or whatever but the actress who portrays her as a full-grown woman who like looks the same in all the series she acts in and is like not quite as egregious as Renee Zellweger in Bridget Jones's diary but is like fat feels like an over like she maybe for Hollywood (laughs) but I don't know if she necessarily would move through the dive bars of Chicago as a fat woman, right? Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So just acknowledging my personal reference points there. (laughs) I wonder what the experience of watching Penelope has been like on the Netflix series. Her fatness is not commented upon at all. Okay. It's
0: that she's a wallflower and she's unfashionable. And so those might be dog whistles for fat. Are all very thin. And she's the people she's surrounded by are. Yes. To the point of excruciation at some point. (laughs) But no, no, like, it doesn't seem to me that much hay is being made of her size so much as, like, her family's uncouth.
1: As someone who read her book, Mm -hmm. do you feel like much hay was made of her size in that book? Yes. Oh, okay. And, like, but, like, the hay that was made is, like, ugly duckling the swan.
0: But, like, the fact that, like, her weight was the thing that made her to the ugly duckling wallflower suck.
1: And is her weight the thing that makes, is it commented on in book one, Daphne's story? I don't remember it in book one. Okay. But the idea is by the time her story comes around, she slims up. Yeah. And she's considered a swan. Both in her own mind and in the
0: minds of others. Oh, she's like, oh,
1: thank God I'm hot now. I always knew it was in me.
0: No, I didn't know it was in me, and now I don't know how to act. I don't know that I'm beautiful. (gasps) But I do know that I look better.
1: And people treat me differently, Mm -hmm. perhaps, Mm -hmm. including her love interest. Mm -hmm. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. Uh, This feels like a good opportunity for a PSA. Don't listen to any of the This American Life episodes about fatness. They are too real And not handled with any empathy by the host. And you will continue to spiral about them for decades, regardless of your current size. I think it would shake the foundations of anyone's perception about body. Maybe they need to. Actually, you should listen to them.
0: Listen to like the first, the one who has that awful surgery and she has to hold... Her skin, like I will never forget her describing that.
1: What about the girl who like gets put on diet pills, loses a ton of weight, marries a guy from her apartment complex on their wedding day, realizes that he did not realize she was the same fat girl as before and then tries to convince her that who she is now as a thin woman is who she actually is in order to protect himself from the honest truth that he would not have spoken to her as a fat woman because she was fat. He's like, I wouldn't have spoken to you as a fat woman because you wouldn't have been yourself. Right, like you were so shut down, you were all these things, and she's like... And she realizes that the opposite is true. And then Roxanne Gay comes on to talk to Ira Glass. (sighs) And fucking Dan Savage. So if you've done a lot of work on your self-acceptance, don't listen to the episode. Maybe don't, yeah. Because you don't need to be aware of everybody else's bullshit.
0: And everybody else has bullshit, so like fucking don't.
1: And it's all their bullshit. Yeah, it's not you. And that's what that This American Life episode is about, is about people who are truly doing for themselves, whether it's self-acceptance or changing the way they look and then realizing like oh, it's about other people um, and how they're going to treat me. Is And, like, you don't need that. But if you feel bad about yourself every fucking day, you should listen to the show and realize that it's, like, not you. You know, you can work on yourself and your self-perception and you'll always have hurdles as far as how other people treat you. But – if someone is genuinely treating you that way because of how you look it's it's not you also like as a person who pretty much exclusively buys vintage and thrifted clothing um who is of a larger size something that always frustrated me was like oh i can't buy anything because like people historically were so much smaller no it's because their clothes got worn like the reason we have so many small pieces of vintage clothing is because it didn't get purchased and didn't get worn because it's very rare to be that small and it's always been very rare to be that small and we've edited the historical record including through romance novels like Bridgerton to create a reality in which then people were always thin, you know, as thin as they are now.
0: The dresses that are in museums are there because they weren't passed down to children and worn to death. Like,
1: those women died. Wasps have always looked like wasps. Yeah. Is the thing. Bibbertons. And the Bibbertons, I think it's relevant to the Bibbertons and the story And all It is. It's super relevant. Also, like, in general, how, like, everyone in a Regency romance novel was petite, even though Jane Austen made no hullabaloo. mm You know who did? Charlotte Bronte. Charlotte Bronte did make a hullabaloo about size. Okay. Do you think the TV show will comment on size? I
0: imagine that they'll have to in season three. It would be weird if they didn't at this point.
1: Why is that?
0: Because of how this show talks explicitly about beauty, both in its materiality and everything else, like it's, I mean, it's, maybe they won't because it's, it's exactly or very similar to the race thing where it's like, we have race conscious casting, we changed or we changed Kate Sheffield to Kate Sharma, look at how good we're doing, but then... Have her face the ton and have all of the stuff about India underneath, but like still present, quote unquote. And have all of the explicit stuff be about the fact that her sister doesn't have a dowry. Potentially how they could deal with weight, where it's like, oh, it's not that we don't like you because, you know, you are heavier. It's because you're a wallflower and you're not confident and you've, like, you've allowed yourself to be passed over. It's like, I can imagine that people would, like, say that explicitly, mean it in the show. Yeah. This show doesn't deal with uncomfortable truths. That's not its, that's not its bag.
1: Okay. Well, it's, it's like I don't know. I guess I just thought it would. what I mean, well, is it a romance? Is it a romance without angst? All of the
0: all of the angst is between the two people who want to fuck each other and can't. Well, in the first season, they can't fuck each other because he doesn't want to get her pregnant. And then they like do fuck each other. And it's very hot.
1: Why can't they fuck each other?
0: In the second season, they can't fuck each other because he has declared himself for Kate's younger sister. uh, Because he thinks that she will be an obedient and pliable wife when he's really pining for the older sister who's talkative and competitive and fun.
1: I'm going to be real honest with you. Season two sounds pretty hot. (laughs) It's like perfect
0: Morgan hot is what I will say.
1: What does that mean?
0: So many burning glances, so many hand squeezes, (laughs) so many neck sniffs without actually consummating.
1: So you're saying it's sexually expansive
0: it's sexually expansive it's hypercharged it's like that feeling that you get and I know you'll understand what I'm talking about when you're standing in a field in Kansas and you're watching a storm roll in for several <laughs> hours before it hits and you feel all of the hairs on your arms go up and you can just watch that thundercloud come rolling Handering. That's what season two is like when season one is just explicit, like, butts, 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 butts.
1: Lots of butts. And they're good butts. Hot butts. Hot, taut butts. Hot, tot butts season one. Hot, tot glances.
0: Season two. I mean, it's honestly perfect for you in that way.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, I, look, I'm, I'm only human in the way that i'm human and i love a hot top butt but it's to me romance lives in longing like even love like even the love songs i prefer are yes longing love songs not like gee this is great everything's cool i love having sex with you <laughs> it's <laughs> i like
0: longing <laughs> This is a longing season, and a lot of it is, like, the obstacles that they throw in front of each other are, like, duty and family, and there's, like, this actually... Ugh. Ugh. Typical. Typical. One of the things that I think the show actually did very well is that Anthony has this incredible trauma,
1: uh-huh.
0: of course, his deep, dark trauma, is that he watched his dad die incredibly unexpectedly.
1: Hands full of hyacinths.
0: Hands full of hyacinths. His dad stung by a bee and goes into Anthony Anaphylactic shock and dies within 90 seconds. His mother is nine months pregnant. Like, you just got to go with it. You just got to go with it. That's what happens. Anthony watches it. And then all of his siblings, except for the one who isn't born yet, are in the door crying because they've just witnessed this thing. And so then he walks in to both try to, like, comfort the family. And then suddenly all of the servants are like, what should we do with the body? What should we do with the money? What?" And, like, suddenly he's thrust into Ugh. the mode of v when he's literally just been... Son, bereaved son. And then there's this incredible scene of grief. One of the things that I think this this television show does incredibly well is handle grief. Because the mom goes into early labor. And there's this ugly scene where the doctor calls in Anthony while his mother is screaming, trying to spew forth an infant from her grieving body.
1: How old is Anthony at this point?
0: 19, 17, something like that.
1: Yeah, he's a an adult.
0: Yeah, but like for England at this time, he's still a boy. Oh, really? Because he hasn't gone up to Oxford, uh, Oxford or Cambridge. Oh, okay. So... He hasn't had his education. Anyway, so he's thrust into all of this. And the doctor's like, what do you want us to do? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. And the mom is like, you shouldn't ask him that. Like, that's not for him to decide. And then the doctor's like, do you want us to save your mother? Do you want us to save the baby? And, And she's like, you shouldn't be here. You don't get to decide this. Like, the person who would decide this with me wouldn't even have this as a question, right? Like, I am the thing. And so there's this awful scene where he's like, do whatever she says. He, like, leaves his screaming mother who might die in childbirth after he's just lost his dad. After that whole fucked up scene, (laughs) there's a scene where she's in the morning room and she's given birth. And, like, it's, like, at least a month later. And Anthony comes in and he's like, hey, we're going to have family dinner, mom. It would be really good if you came. And she just, like, she's like, I can't. I put on clothes. I saw the baby. I had some food today. Like, I cannot. And the honest depiction of what grief would do to a family like this separately and together and, like, how traumatic that would be. The show did a really good job of talking about how grief doesn't get smaller. You just get better at carrying it.
1: Mm -hmm. And so
0: then there's this scene later where he's like, I never want to fall in love because of what it fucking did to you. Like, you were basically dead. And she's like, I'm so sorry that it felt that way to you. Like, I understand why you think that, but, like, I'd never – I'd never undo it. Like I'd do it again and that's what gives me comfort. And I thought that was like a really good discussion of like the power of grief, um, both to act in families and without. And so like one of the things that Anthony's grief does is he just becomes a ginormous dick. Like he orders his brothers and sisters around. He's like without empathy. He's just like really, really shut down. And there's this scene where he tells Kate Uh, Sharma, that like, I think I've been doing everything wrong with my siblings. I think they all hate me and I love them so much, but I've just been trying to do the right thing. And it's like, he's been doing what he thought was right. He never asked his siblings. And so like, there's a pretty good come to Jesus where he's like, I really just want you to be happy, Sibs.
1: It sounds that as a critical thinking romance fan, you enjoyed the show.
0: Yeah, but they're like popcorn. Like they're not
1: what fulfilling. Well, like what would be fulfilling? My sweet, my
0: folly. sweet. Folly. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I mean. Where it's like there are so many moments where Bridgerton could have done a better job on race on weight. On class.
1: Because it seems like it's choosing to do a job on those things, just as, like, it is. someone who's seen, like, discourse. Yes. And trailers and things. Do you think it's making a good faith attempt? Or do you think it's gesturing towards those things so that people feel like what they're engaging in has depth?
0: Ooh, The framing of that question suggests an answer before...
1: Well, that wasn't very, that wasn't very good framing. The framing of of that is not objective. I feel like if I was in a, if I was in a
0: court of law, there would be an objection. I would like to break that question into two parts. Do I think it's a good faith argument? Yes and no. I think that it is in good faith that they have hired actors of color and that they've done as much and they've they've peopled the world
1: and writers of color as well right
0: and writers of color Mm it's and it's not just the sharmas it's it's the whole background like the the extras are also and it's not just the servants like there's it's a colorful world yeah does that sincere effort (laughs) do anything other than progressive wash the show no Not in my estimation, but like that's what it is. It's like when, um, you know, detergents are like, we're green. And I'm like, what did you do to be green? They're like, we use 13%
1: less plastic in this one bottle. And I was like, oh, you're green washing. Okay. (laughs) By the way, you can clean your clothes with two tablespoons of deodorant and a gentle cycle on cold. Like, you wear your shirt once and then you wash it. You know what I mean? Like, what's going – I mean, like, maybe if you, like, gushed blood onto something, which I do frequently,
0: (laughs) um, it requires a little bit more elbow grease. This show is not applying very much elbow grease into the space of what it could.
1: I don't know. I guess I thought, like, the series had added in – people of color to add, to make explicit issues that have always been prevalent, right? Like, Alexandre Dumas faced a lot of the same shit that a person of color and power would face today. This is, like, one of the things that I really struggle with with white feminism because I think one of the key problems of white feminism, which I think is kind of often the coin of the realm in romance, I think so much other stuff... Dwells in romance, but this kind of like mainstream romance, this idea of significant progress on a cultural or structural level. And I think if the series was honest in addressing like what it would mean to be a person of color from India in London's season, or if it wanted to address what it means to be a queen who is black in the regency it would have to indicate how much explicitly how much things are the same and i think one of the things romance does via the erasure of people of color in historical romance is to imply that there's some sort of progress by merely having the presence of people of color whereas that's not true <laughs> we've always been together and not much has changed as far as how that togetherness functions at least not since the regency period i mean there are there are things like the right to vote and things like that of course yeah yes yeah yeah,
0: yeah systemically it's um but if you look at how many black people are senators.
1: Or in Parliament. <laughs> or in Parliament.
0: And like maybe I'm being too hard. Like I'm trying to think about like that question of like what it means to deal honestly. Kate and Edwina Sharma speak more languages than any other debutantes. They have perfect manners and perfect clothes. And I think there's a question there, too, then, of like how good you have to be, especially in comparison to your white counterparts. Like, that um, overachievement just to be accepted is certainly present in the second season. But again, it is never explicitly said. Like, where the show shines is in the domestic. Like, Kate loves her baby sister Edwina. And, you know, the other thing about that that is lovely is that they're half-sisters and that there's this lovely line between Kate and her stepmother where she's like, would it have been easier if, like, my father hadn't had me? And the stepmother says, you made me a mother. Like, I fell in love with you as much as I fell in love with him and, like, I wanted – you in my life just like I wanted him at you there was no separation and like those kinds of conversations about like different kinds of family and like how love works between individuals it, it, the show does really well but it's all that other stuff that the show really just like doesn't seem to have an interest in investigating even as it purports to it uh,
1: it seems like that stuff though, like. About Edwina and her sister would have been present in the book it was I don't know. I hope that like I'd hoped that like it pushed beyond the book in a meaningful way because it seems to like want to, and I'm hearing that it doesn't, but I'm also hearing from you that oftentimes, as people who have woed many a Joanna Lindsay no less of a pleasurable viewing experience does that make this is a show where its reach exceeds its grasp but that's so many shows that's all of us including our show that's so many shows many and so, like, sometimes we sometimes i feel like we we get
0: it <laughs> and sometimes we don't and like it to air is to be human and i think one of the things about this show and like for all it purports to do it doesn't do enough of what it says it sets out to do Hmm. but it remains a very fun thing to watch yeah that doesn't really require very much of you and that might be the big thing
1: yeah will you watch season three
0: I want to say probably but like who am I the fuck kidding of course I'm gonna watch season three (laughs) I love period pieces and I love the soundtrack I'm just gonna keep watching it because like It's this in Sanditon.
1: (laughs) I feel like a lot of people who read romance novels, but they read contemporary romance novels because there's like, I think, a little bit more plausible deniability reading contemporary romance novels. Sure. Have found because we talk about this all the time, the historical romance allows you to be a lot more id, like a lot more mm-hmm. in it. Like that's why we like it. That's why when I asked our listeners what their biggest woe was, we got so many historical <laughs> romances. Um I think it allows your id to be a little bit more free, a little bit more loosey-goosey. People are ripe to come to this. And uh, someone already asked us this before, but Isabeau Knowing what you know as someone who has actually viewed Bridgerton season one and season two, and I think you've also dabbled in Virgin River, what series do you think is the right next? Mm -hmm. Like if you could choose a series, a romance, or even I feel like one romance novel could be a series. Yeah. What do you think would be the most, not just like the one you love the best, so you want it in more ways, right? Like the one you think would make the best next series television television series home entertainment series. that's an excellent
0: question that i feel really really unprepared to answer okay because yeah it would obviously be a historical for me and then the question is like which historical do i want to spend eight to ten episodes with obviously Alora can sail
1: oh yeah what's rich enough for that i'm trying to think of even allura can sail that's taken me eight hours to read though
0: I mean I just like slam them like I know like the way I used to slam
1: <laughs> uh jello shots. That's the thing about romance novels as far as their adaptation goes, like how long do you spend reading them? Even,
0: you know, they go down so good is the
1: thing. They go down so easy. Do you know who goes down good but doesn't go down easy for me is Judith Ivory. God, I would love to – I would watch the shit out of The Proposition. I think that could hold up for eight hours. Or even if they did that Christmas one by uh, Cecilia Grant, that could also hold up for eight hours. Even though I think I read it in one.
0: Yeah, easily. I
1: would (laughs) –
0: I'd watch Deceived by the Gargoyle. I like – this is – yeah, this is a really hard question for me because it's like – I think – one of the things that we're missing in the Rake S would be amazing. I mean, I like Scarlett Peckham, any of
1: those. Oh, the like, uh, yeah, that series. What? What is it? Charlotte Street or something? The
0: Earl I Ruined, yeah. I would watch the shit out of. Scarlett,
1: we know what it is. Um, Sherry Thomas has some good ones. Can I say, like, I know Beverly Jenkins gets thrown around a lot anytime black historical romance comes up but i will say beverly jenkins writes texts that i think could hold up to an eight-hour adaptation but i also think it represents something which is like a like a real commitment to historicism telling a story that's accurate but also telling stories of black joy and black love that are not super prevalent, especially on like something like a Netflix series.
0: Mm-hmm. God, G.D. Lynn, you know the p- the problem isn't that romance isn't right for adaptation because it a hundred percent is in many ways the books are incredibly cinematic, have fade to Blacks already written into them. <laughs> like
1: it's, it's kind of clear where like even Bridgerton's shortcomings are is that like the text is rich enough. The origin text in itself is rich enough to carry an entire series. And for people who read romance, like Julia Quinn is like a good romance author. Mm-hmm. But is she Beverly Jenkins? Is she... Laura Kinsale, is she Judith Ivory? Is she Sherry Thomas or Courtney Milan? I
0: mean there are like so many people working in the spaces that are also trying to deal with big questions that like historical fiction's ripe to deal with. Like as we say we're never writing about 1814, we're always writing about now.
1: I think the next histo- I think the next romance adaptation should be one of those romances that is dealing with questions directly so that you don't have to do like an attempt at addressing them directly that falls short. But I am also hearing Bridgerton is a nice little watch. There are worse ways to spend eight hours.
0: (laughs) If you like pretty people staring at each other hungrily while dancing on my own plays on a string quartet, might I... (laughs)
1: And Amazon Prime has taken off so many oh, of the PBS it's so series. true. But if you're also looking for a historical that does deal with
0: this kind of stuff much more better, might I recommend Franny Fisher's Murder Mysteries. It's not quite a romance, but <laughs> it does deal with racism, classism, and patriarchy explicitly head on more than once. And doesn't do it flinchingly, so that would be bad. If you you need period pieces in your life, Priney Fisher.
1: Yeah. Or My Sweet Folly, which seems to fit the bill of the TV adaptation of season two, or Anthony's story, The V-Count Who Loved Me, as well as Eloise's story. I am glad to see a TV show adapting a book that feels entitled to like stretch its legs a little bit though and i hope that it continues in more creative and bold directions um so is it a woe or no the bridgerton tv series Mm.
0: (sighs) that's so hard because i'm like i enjoyed it and there isn't a ton else
1: okay I think that's good though. Sometimes you need something that you just enjoy and there isn't much else.
0: That is about as full throated a recommendation as I can
1: give it. It's so incredibly difficult to make something that is enjoyable. Yeah, like I this scratches an itch that I have. Like I just can't watch Pride and Prejudice
0: again. Jesus. <laughs> yes. It it it's like candy corn or not candy corn, uh like um the 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 caramel corn the the popcorn that's sweet i don't like it but other people do and it doesn't last very it's long it's like
1: the cheddar popcorn i love cheddar popcorn yeah it's like that it's like it just doesn't last very long it like so don't try to make it something bigger than it is but enjoy it for what it is all right i can appreciate that yeah it's not meant to be like nutritious and it's not going to be fulfilling but it is, like, it's cool in that it's, like, a really publicized, popular adaptation of a romance novel that will hopefully lead to other groovy adaptations. And maybe it's enough that it's just, like, a joyful piece of art with cheap dresses and terrible wigs. All right. With that. Loosen your woes. But never your noses. Thanks so much, Isabel. Yes. This was fun. Ooh. Woly guacamole everyone Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance
0: Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan
1: And by my friend Isabel Our logo artwork Is by another friend, Mary Reichman You can find her on Instagram At m.reichman Spelled R-E-I-S-C-H M-A-N-N
0: Original music by Nick Gravelin And our webmistress is Jane Bonsack
1: If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email WomanceMail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.
0: Romance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash
1: podcasts.
0: Until next time.